Good morning and welcome to Sunday School. As you can see, I have a little bit of a head, headphones upgrade today. That's hopefully so I can hear you better and uh, interact with you a little bit better. But Greg and I are working not just on my end, but on the Calvary end in terms of sounds so that the best, best frequency and the best settings are all set. So we'll continue to work through that going forward. But as I say, welcome back. Last week, we considered the question of God's existence, and we concluded we can know that God exists. We saw actually that all people know that the God of the Bible, uh, that the God of the Bible exists, but they suppress this knowledge. Consequently, the pattern for us as Christians in presenting evidence, or I'm sorry, for presenting God's existence is to simply declare God's word and then Along with that, reason, present reasoning and evidence that is founded on God's word. It's not that you can't use reasoning, but the reasoning needs a foundation. It's not that you can't use evidence, but it needs to come from a biblical perspective. So we are primarily proclaimers, and we even reason and give evidence based off the proclamation of scripture. We also saw last week that the ultimate reason that we or anyone else ever believes in God or the Bible is the testimony of God's Spirit. There are many good reasons uh, to believe in God or to believe in the Bible, but these reasons would not be enough in and of themselves. We would constantly be fighting against them in our spirit, or we'd be constantly finding other explanations. What we really need and what people, the world, need is to hear God's voice and to see God's glory. And the way that they do that is through God's Spirit uh, changing their hearts and opening their eyes, and he does that via the proclamation of the word. It is the foolishness of what is preached that God has ordained to bring people into his kingdom. And in this way, salvation is all of God, and he gets all the glory. Now, speaking of God's glory, we have another, we have one more lesson on God as we proceed in the beginning of our study of the Bible. And today we're talking about God as Trinity. We've already seen in broaching God's attributes that God is way beyond us, that he has revealed himself to us, that he has graciously condescended to come near to us and to make himself known to us. We cannot, or no, we can only begin to fathom his depths. And we're going to see that that experience is also true when it comes to thinking about God as triune. We saw this in his eternality. We see this uh, in his holiness and in his love, it's just so vast and beyond our comprehension. And that's certainly true also when it comes to the Trinity. But how should we understand or explain the Trinity? We have to be very careful when it comes to the Trinity because there have been many throughout history who have tried to explain the Trinity and they've end up, ended up saying that is saying something about God that is not true. Uh, others, because they're not able to explain the Trinity, actually have ended up denying the Trinity. So we want to know, is the Trinity really biblical? And if so, how should we defend it? Or how should we explain it? And what, if any, analogies should we use to explain the Trinity? So our agenda for today's class is going to tackle some of those questions. We're going to lay out a biblical argument for the Trinity, one of many biblical arguments that can be made. We're going to clarify our understanding of the Trinity by examining what the Bible teaches versus 
the Trinitarian heresies that have arisen in the past and that still exist today. And then we'll finish with just a few application questions based on our study of God as Trinity. Let's pray before we go on. Great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you, God, that you are the triune God. This is a reality that is so different than anything that we know, and yet it is revealed in your scriptures. And this shows us just more of your glory in seeing the persons of the Trinity relate to one another, to seeing uh, how even in this you are beyond our comprehension. God, I pray that you enable me to speak this well, and I pray that you enable the, the, the people to hear and understand, and God, that we would be moved to give you praise based on seeing more of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, some have liked to point out that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. In fact, there is no one verse that you can go to in the Bible that all by itself explains or proves the Trinity. Nevertheless, as with other biblical concepts or terms, even if the word is not used, the concept of the Trinity is all over the Bible. And as, moreover, even if one verse does not prove the Trinity, when you consider the totality of the Bible, when you look at all the verses, the many verses together, the truth of the Trinity is inescapable. Now, I should clarify before we start, what exactly do we mean by Trinity or that God is Trinity? Many of you know this, but it's worth re-explaining. You notice that the word Trinity has the idea of three and unity, tri-unity, Trinity. And that's the idea. We'll come back to this, but we can boil down the doctrine of God's Trinity into three different truths or premises that emerge from the Bible that lead to one conclusion. I'll have a slide about this later on, but first, first truth, there is one God. Bible declares there's one God. Second, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all identified in scriptures as God. That's the second premise. There's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all identified in the Bible as God, and then thirdly, these three relate to each other and to the world as distinct persons. So they're all called God, but they're distinct from one another, and they relate to the world and each other as distinct persons. The conclusion, the one true God of the Bible has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or in other words, the Trinity. Now, one traditional way of describing the Trinity is to say there is one God who exists in three persons. Or you could say God has one essence of being, but exists in three persons. Now, this is a reality declared in the Bible, but because this is a, a transcendent reality, we even trying to find the correct terms or the most descriptive terms can be difficult. But this is the, this is the, the kind of terms that have come down to us as Christians have sought to defend and explain this reality uh, over the centuries. Now, as I say, the doctrine of the Trinity is supported all over the Bible. And we could argue God's triune nature from multiple angles, but the angle that we're going to use this morning is creation. How, how is it that what the Bible says about creation actually proves that God is triune? And we're going to look at a number of different passages as we build an argument for the Trinity from Scripture. And the first passage we're going to look at is one that we've actually looked at pretty recently. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 1, chapter 1, 
and we'll look at verses 1 to 3. We were just here, I think, last week. We're going back to this passage to see how creation interacts with the idea of God's nature. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And notice here, verse 1 tells us who it was that created everything. Uh, I won't say that. Who was it? It was God. God created the heavens and the earth. But in the process of creation, as it is further described in verse 2, whom is it that we see? The Spirit of God. Notice what the Spirit of God is doing. It is hovering or moving over the surface of the waters. But then notice verse 3. Who initiates the, who initiates the action of creation? God does. God says, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, so from the beginning of the Bible, we learn a few things about God. We learn that God created the heavens and the earth. We learn that God has a spirit. The spirit of God is mentioned here. And this spirit was present at creation. God created, God has a spirit. The spirit was present at, present at creation. Now, is this all the Bible tells us about God and being creator? Well, not at all. There are many other passages in the Bible outside of Genesis that describe God in, in his creation. And one is Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. Let's turn over there. As I say, we'll be looking at a number of passages. Psalm 33, 6. A comment later from the psalmist on creation. We're just looking at this one verse, but notice what it says. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, that is Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now, notice how this underscores what we saw in Genesis 1, 1 to 3. It says God, or we saw there, God spoke and created light. And here it is, the word of Yahweh creates. But there's another connection in this passage, however. The word spirit, the word for the spirit, moving over the waters in Genesis 1-2, is the same word for breath here in Psalm 33-6. It's the Hebrew word ruach, and it can be translated either spirit or breath, or even wind. Therefore, when it says, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts were made, that could be a reference to the spirit of God which we know from Genesis was present at creation. If so, this verse would be saying that Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and then also the Spirit made the heavens. Again, there's reasons, or there might be reason to just take it as breath here. We do see that connection with the word of God creating. But nonetheless, we have another comment on creation and who created in the Psalms. But now let's move over to the New Testament. Look at John. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And let's see what we learn here 
about God and creation. John 1, 1-5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Hmm. So notice how this passage relates to what we read in Genesis 1 and Psalm 33. Our writer John here talks about a word at the beginning that was responsible for all of creation. Uh, nothing was created apart from the word. However, this word is said to be God, but also be with God. Now, John goes on to clarify in this chapter the identity of this word. This word is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. So in the beginning of chapter 1, John is saying that it is the Son of God who created so let's pause for a moment and just think about these verses. None of these verses have stated that God is Trinity. But we do see from the Bible that three persons were involved in creation. We have God, we have the Spirit of God, we can also call the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God incarnate, whom John identifies as Jesus. Okay, so three persons at creation. But the next passage we're going to look at is going to complicate our understanding of things. Let's go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, we're going to look at verses 23 to 26. So we've had a number of passages saying that we have three persons at creation, but now words of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 23 to 26. Shout for joy, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purposes, purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. I gave you some of the context here to see that there's an argument being made in this passage. Make some observations with me. This is Hebrew poetry. We see some figurative language in verse 23. Earth and sky cannot literally shout or pour forth praise, but they are figuratively called to rejoice. And why is it? Because of the end of what verse 23 says. God has redeemed Israel. God has redeemed his people. As part of God redeeming Israel, notice what God specifically promises in verse 26. He says the cities of Judah, including Jerusalem, will be rebuilt and inhabited again. You might remember the message of the book of Isaiah is one of judgment and restoration. And God here is promising there will be restoration after judgment. I'm the one who's going to accomplish this. This is to give comfort and hope to those who believe in God in Judah. Now, as an assurance that this promised redemption of Israel is real, God, through 
Isaiah, his prophet, reminds his listeners of a few facts. And notice in verses 24 to 25, the reminders that God gives. He says, by the way, I made the world. And I'm still responsible for making everything in the world, including you. And I confound the boasting and the wisdom of those who do not believe in me. He's, by reminding his people of his power as creator and his sovereignty over the world, this is to show them they can trust in him to redeem and to keep his promises. But notice that in his reminder about creation, God reveals something quite poignant, especially in the light of the passages we've looked at already. Who was with God and who helped him with creation? God declares it was no one. He says, all alone. Three times, he basically says the same thing. I'm the maker of all things. I did it by myself. I did it all alone. Okay, well, how do we reconcile this with the verses that we just examined, which clearly showed that the Spirit of God was there at the creation and was part of the creation process, and that the Word was also there at creation, the Son of God, and it was through Him that creation was made. God cannot lie. Scripture cannot be broken, but there must be some way then to reconcile these truths. Some ways to have multiple persons involved in creation and yet have only one God be the creator. And what is the solution? What we've already described, the concept of God as Trinity. The idea of one God, but three persons in God, all of them being God is the only way to reconcile these passages. Other passages that we could look to give similar, similar claims to creationary ex exclusivity, and they further emphasize that it must have been a triune God at creation. For example, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Colossians 1, 15 to 17, I'll just read this to you. It says, he, talking about God's beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So again, we see Jesus, the Son of God, is said to be creator. And nothing was made unless the Son made it. Which, by the way, this passage in the one in John is a great response to Jehovah's Witnesses who say, no, Jesus is not God. He's a created being. Well, no, he says he made, the Bible declares multiple times, anything that was created was made through the Son. So he can't have been created himself. Or Psalm 104, verses 30. Psalm 104, 30, speaking about what God does in the world. Psalmist writes, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now, in the context, he's not specifically talking about the original creation, but he's talking about God's ongoing uh, creation acts and God's sustenance of the world. And he says it's the spirit that's doing this. It's the spirit that is allowing anything to be created. God sends forth his spirit to accomplish the creation of living things, which, again, would by inference, show that the Spirit was responsible and part of creation. So again, tying these verses together, God, the Spirit, and the Son, or God, 
or whom we can also call the Father, the Spirit and the Son are all involved in creation. And yet, God and the Son are said to have exclusively created. Isaiah, God says, I did it all alone. Verse in Colossians and in John, the Son exclusively created. What is the only explanation that can unite these truths? It is the Trinity. One God, three persons. Now, as we'll see in a moment, more clearly, the persons of God are distinct. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are each one God. Not parts of God, mind you, but each one is fully God. We'll come back to that idea a little bit more later. One way to break down how the persons of the Trinity acted in creation, one way it's often articulated, God the Father commanded, and the Son and the Spirit accomplished the Father's commandment. Different roles in creation, in the Trinity, yet three persons united in one God, exclusively, as God, the one being, accomplishing creation. Now, we built up an argument for the Trinity based on assertions about creation. There are certainly many other ways that we could support this truth that God is triune. Uh, there are passages that describe worship of the different persons of the Trinity, and passages that also demand worship of the only one true God. So you have, uh, yeah, worship of the Son or the Spirit, but also passages say that you can only worship God. There are passages that describe each of the three persons of God as eternal, which is quality that only God has. And there are passages that attribute the resurrection of Jesus to all three persons. It will say that the Father resurrected, the Son resurrected himself, or that it was the Spirit that caused him to rise. So there are many other arguments we can make from the Bible for God being Trinity. But you can see just one when we even look at what the Bible says about creation. So I hope you can see that the word having the word Trinity in the Bible isn't necessary to see that the concept of the Trinity is plain when you examine the Bible as a whole and as you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, someone might come along and say, all right, I agree with you. There are three persons in God, but God is only one person at a time. You know, that's how God can be three persons in one. He's just a quick change artist. Sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit. Well, there's one event in the Bible that pretty easily contradicts this claim. And maybe if you're, think, you're already thinking of it, it is Jesus' baptism. So please go with me to Matthew chapter 3. This is where we see one of the accounts of Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, there are parallels in Mark and Luke. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. There we go, Matthew 3. All right. Starting in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
that he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, notice how we see the three persons of the Trinity represented in this passage. The Son is baptized, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks from heaven. There's no way that God can be a quick change artist here. They're all present at the same moment. Now again, this passage by itself doesn't prove the Trinity or doesn't fully explain the Trinity. In fact, if we looked only at these verses and we didn't look at the rest of the scripture, someone might suppose that Christianity is tritheistic, that there are three gods, or that maybe one of these persons is God and the others are not. But the passage does show, in combination with the other scriptures we've looked at, that the Godhead exists together. They are separate, even though they are one. When we combine this passage with others that talk about God in the scripture, an accurate picture of the Trinitarian relationship within the Godhead emerges. That is why we, to understand the Trinity, must examine the scriptures as a whole. Now, this we should note, there is a natural question that arises up in this, in us as men, as people. How can this be? How can one being have three persons? Such does not exist in our world. This doesn't make sense to us on a certain level. And maybe it doesn't and will never make full sense to us. But neither does God's dwelling with, but also outside space and time. We can't comprehend that because that's not the way we exist. God can be in time and yet not be bound at time, bound by time at all, as we've already seen. And the same thing with space. God can manifest his presence in a certain space and yet no space can contain God. He's beyond space and time. How can that be? We can't make sense of that, yet the Bible reveals that. The Bible's clear on those things. So it is that we are to understand this revelation of God as Trinity. We are to accept these revelations about God by faith, and not to try to fully comprehend these things that are, in the words of the psalmist, too wonderful for us. Actually, and I've already alluded to this, the unfathomable the unfathomableness of God as Trinity shows us even more how glorious he is. As Psalm 145.3 says, the ways of God are unsearchable. He is so glorious and high above us. He is the God who dwells in inapproachable light. There's no way that even by our careful and unending reasoning and thinking that we can comprehend God. We only have the, the very smallest comprehension based on what he reveals to us. And yet that just shows us how great and how much more God is. The Trinity is another way that we see that. So again, though it's beyond our full comprehension, the Bible is clear. And I'm presenting to you those premises that I mentioned before and the conclusion. Why do we believe that our God is Trinity? Because Looking through the Bible, putting the Bible together as a whole, we see there's only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all identified in Scripture as God. 
and these three relate to one another and to the world as distinct persons. The conclusion can only be that the one true God of the Bible has revealed himself to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or, as we say, a trinity. Now, it's important that we humble ourselves and accept these truths by faith because what is it that happens when we insist on making sense of the Trinity by some system of reasoning that we can comfortably comprehend? What's the result? We fall into error, even damning heresy. Uh, I don't use that term lightly. When we talk about heresy, we're talking about something that if you believe, you can't be saved. And when it comes to the Trinity, using human reasoning in a way to make the Trinity comfortable for us is an easy way to fall into heresy. You see, when we do not examine the scriptures as a whole, when we rely too much on our experience-informed logic to make sense of the Trinity, we fall into error. And we're going to look now at some errors in understanding the Trinity that have appeared in church history. And we'll also mention how those errors have reappeared or still exist in the present day. I'll just briefly define each one of these errors and tell you a little bit about them. You see the picture on the side of the screen that is the Trinity shield. It's a visual that helps us keep straight uh, the Trinity and explain it. Mention a little bit more about that later on. But look at the isms lifted on the on the other side of your screen and we'll talk through each one of them. These are errors, heresies when it comes to the Trinity. And by understanding the errors, we can better understand the truth. So the first is modalism, also called Sibelianism. Modalism states that the three persons of the Trinity are just different versions or modes of the same God, depending on the era of the redemptive history. God was the Father in the Old Testament, he was the Son in the Incarnation, and he is the Spirit in the Church Age. So this is the quick change artist theory that we mentioned a little bit earlier. And this is a nice and comfortable idea for the human mind. We can comprehend this. We can comprehend someone who, who takes on different roles at different times. And it does seem to make sense with Jesus' claim that he and the Father are one. Oh, yeah, they're so one that they're actually totally the same. They're just different versions of the same person. But too bad this view totally contradicts scripture when we examine other passages including the baptism account that we looked at together. But this heresy lives on today in oneness Pentecostalism and in some forms of Unitarianism. There are some who insist, no, God just takes on different forms at different times. That's how we understand the Trinity. So modalism. Next is Arianism. Arianism is the belief that only the Father is God, while the Son is a created, though exalted being. As Arius, who was a, an elder or a presbyter in the 4th century, he, his maxim was, when it came to understanding the Trinity, there was a time when the Son was not. That is, he was a created being. Holy Spirit, meanwhile, in Arianism, is either a created being also or is just an impersonal force. Now, again, this view of understanding only the Father as God, it's nice for human reasoning. It's more comfortable. And it keys in on statements in the Bible, the sons being the only begotten of the Father, begotten, or the firstborn of creation. Hmm, okay, noticing this theme about birth, birth must mean creation, right? And also you can throw in those passages that seem to talk about Jesus being exalted. 
But again, this view fails to consider the whole of Scripture, and that these birth passages can be understood to refer to privilege and role, not essence. Jesus is not a created being, but he does have a role as firstborn over creation. And of course, Arianism lives on today in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the deity of Christ and call him a created being. I think others also do that, but Jehovah's Witnesses are probably the most famous. Next, we have adoptionism. This is similar to Arianism in that the Son is not God, but was exalted to the status of God, in a sense, when the Father adopted the Son at some point in Jesus's ministry, either at his baptism or his resurrection or his ascension. So Jesus becomes God, he's adopted and made God. And again, this would go back to the passages that talk about Jesus being begotten or gaining glory or being exalted by the Father. Some Unitarians today hold to this view, but again, it's not consistent with all of Scripture. Next, we have subordinationism. The subordinationism states that though God is triune, the Father is superior in nature and essence to the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Son and the Spirit are eternally subordinate to the Father and thus inferior in glory. This belief in some ways is similar to Arianism. It keys on the statements of the Bible describing the Son's submission to the Father and the Spirit's submission to the Son and Father. If he's a Son, he's always submitting, he must be inferior. The Father is the most exalted in the Trinity. But again, this view does not consider all of Scripture, including Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The truth is that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equal in eternality, essence, nature, and glory to the Father. Though there is a distinction in roles among the Trinity. The Son does submit to the Father, but this does not make the Son inferior to the Father. And the Holy Spirit does obey the Father and the Son, but this does not make the Holy Spirit inferior. We can see a strong, though not completely perfect, parallel to this reality in the roles that God has ordained in the Christian family. The husband is the biblical leader of the family, and the wife is to submit to her husband, and the children are to submit to both father and mother. But the father is not superior to the other members of his family. He's not superior in his essence or nature. He is, in the end, a person made in the image of God, the same as his wife, the same as his children. And his value before God is the same. And nevertheless, God has ordained roles for these equal members in the family. And in a similar way, there are different roles for the equal persons of the triune God. Now, debate about subordination within the Trinity is actually was a hot topic just a few years ago, even among evangelicals. How do we understand 
the submission within the Trinity? Does that mean that one is inferior to the other? The teaching of the Bible, and really the teaching that has been affirmed by God's people throughout the centuries, is that though there are different roles, there is no inferiority in essence or nature. Next, we have partialism. Partialism doesn't refer to a heretical movement per se, but it is a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Partialism is the belief that each person of the Trinity is only part of the one true God rather than all of God. Now, this sounds reasonable. That might be what we intuit. But that's not how the Bible presents the persons of the Trinity. Consider what Colossians 2.9 says of the Son. Colossians 2.9. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that's a very key statement. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This verse is not saying that the Son is merely full of the divine, as if there was a large amount of divine lying around and there's just a portion poured into Jesus. No, rather, the verse tells us that all of the divine essence, all the essence that there is, dwells in the Son, even in his incarnation. Jesus is all the fullness of God, as is each member of the Trinity. Now, you might scratch your head at that. How can each person of the Trinity be the fullness of God if they are also distinct from one another? John 14, 11 perhaps gives us a little more light on the question. John 14, 11 says, believe me, this is Jesus talking, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Again, we're dealing with a reality that's beyond our understanding. But the Bible does reveal that every person of the Trinity has the fullness of the divine essence in him. The persons of the Trinity are not part of God. Each one is fully God. The full essence of the divine is in them, or is in him. Again, that's that's definitely stretching the mind. That's that's beyond anything that we know. But there is a there's no partialism with God. Two more terms quickly you see on your list: Unitarianism. This really is a catch-all term for those who don't believe in the Trinity. And uh, for people who say that only one person in the Godhead is actually God, Unitarian churches still exist today. They've been around since the 1600s. And then there's tritheism or polytheism. As far as I'm aware, there's no sect of Christianity that actually advocates tritheism, though ancient Gnosticism and Mormonism do tend that way. Nevertheless, the accusation of tritheism or polytheism has often been made against true Christianity by Jews, by Muslims, and by even Unitarians. Oh, the scriptures is pretty clear, though. We don't serve three gods, but one God, just as the Ten Commandments uh, tell us. There, we have to have no other gods before God except God. But our God is triune. Now, you may notice just from going through this list that even slight errors in understanding the Trinity can land you into some pretty hot water. And for this reason, God's people have, again, through Christian history, written creeds at different times to carefully articulate what the Bible teaches about the nature of God and the nature of God's gospel. You've probably heard of some of these creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Now, these creeds are not inspired like the Bible is, but they are strong summaries of biblical teaching especially on the Trinity, that we stand in line with today. When we affirm these things about the Trinity, which I've even presented to you in this class, we are standing on the foundation, maybe it's not quite right the word, but we're standing in a long line of 
Christians who have affirmed those same doctrines and defended them. I encourage you to look up some of these creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, so that you can see how our understanding of the Trinity is consistent with what has been the Orthodox belief of the Church for almost 2,000 years. When I say Orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. I talk about what is correct, what is right, what the Bible actually teaches. This understanding of the Trinity that I've articulated with you today has been what God's faithful have always said. Indeed, we do stand in a long line of faithful ones who across time have encountered the same basic attacks and misunderstandings of the Trinity that we do today. I mean, each one of these errors that I mentioned to you, they existed in ancient times and they're still around today. So we've looked at support for the Trinity in the Bible and we've examined erroneous understandings of the Trinity. Let's ask just a couple of questions regarding application of the doctrine of the Trinity as it is revealed in the Bible. Number one, is there a good analogy for describing the Trinity? What do you think? Can you explain your answer, Steve? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's good, Steve. I'll repeat what you said just a little bit. So you mentioned the analogy or the, the picture of an egg has three parts in it, just as God is one and has three parts, an egg has three parts and is one egg. But as you say, this analogy falls short. It, it puts things in human terms that are comfortable for us, but it doesn't quite explain the reality of the Trinity. When it comes to analogies, it's not necessarily wrong if you use a, a human analogy for the Trinity, but you have to be really careful and you have to show and explain to people how the analogies fail. Uh, Dwayne, uh, what did you want to say? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Dwayne. I will actually will say more about those two analogies you just mentioned just a second, but I'll repeat that real quick. You mentioned using uh, marriage and yeah, using marriage as an analogy of the Trinity, how two persons come together as one flesh in marriage. If they are two different people, they are considered to be one. And you even mentioned how in, the, in our human experience, there's sin that disrupts the unity of that, but God doesn't have that in the Trinity. There's, there, it's only righteousness. There's only, there's only total agreement between the Trinity. And you also mentioned the uh, analogy of the church, where we have one body, but many members. And I think, yes, there's a, there's a usefulness in those analogies. And I think that's actually part of why understanding the Trinity is important. You see it reflected in various institutions of God. And we'll say, we'll say more about that in just a second. But even those have to be properly explained. As I was saying, any analogy you use can be useful to a certain extent. And certainly those analogies in the Bible have, a, have an, I think, maybe an extra benefit to using them. But someone may still look at those and be like, but wait, they're, they're two different people. Or, you know, you have these various people in the church. Are you saying God is that distinct from himself? Now, it only approaches maybe a little bit of the reality of the Trinity. But any analogy ultimately is not going to fully describe what it means to be a triune God. It is so unlike anything in our world that oftentimes the analogies that we want to use better illustrate Trinitarian heresies than the actual truth of the Trinity. Like, um, we could probably perhaps say this with the, the egg analogy, but if you talk about God's being three states of water, he, he, it's just like, you know, water can be vapor, water can be liquid, water can be solid, but each one is water. Well, basically what you've articulated is modalism because water can't be those different states at the different time. Though there is an exception to that, something called the triple point that answers Genesis talks about. But even that, even that analogy doesn't quite work because why water might be together in the different states, it's, you still have to distinguish it into parts. So modalism or partialism in that analogy. Or if you say that God is like a man with three different positions, he can be husband, he can be father, he can be employee all at the same time. Okay, you've just articulated modalism again. It's just one God with different roles or, or different, um, different roles that he's able to switch into. Or you say God is like the sun, which emanates light and heat. You know, three parts, you've got the sun, you've got the light, and you've got the heat. Well, you've articulated Arianism or subordinationism. <laughs> or God is like a three-leaf clover. Well, that's partialism. Now, again, I'm not saying that if you were to use any one of those analogies or one like it, that you're necessarily sinning. Any analogy is going to fall short. You're just trying to maybe emphasize certain parts of the analogy and de-emphasize other parts. This is why I say you must be careful with any analogy you use and explain it well. You might use, as, as I did earlier in the class, one analogy to explain an aspect of the Trinity rather than the whole Trinity itself. Like I talked about the roles of submission in the family. That only talks about the submission aspect of the Trinity. It's an analogy in that respect, but not to the, the full reality of the Trinity. It doesn't, doesn't totally hold up. If you'd like to use a visual to explain the Trinity, probably a good idea is to use the, I'll go back to the previous slide, use the Trinity shield. This one that I mentioned here, it's actually pretty ancient. It's been used uh, for uh, quite some time. We don't know exactly when it first appeared. We don't know where it comes from, but it was certainly around in the 1100s. And this diagram makes very clear that the three persons of the Godhead are the one God. You see that connection into the center. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are distinct from one another. Connections on the outside show the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not the Son. The Son's not the Father. 
So this is a useful visual for explaining the Trinity. But however you explain it, you're going to have to ultimately say, this is a reality. Oops. This is a reality that we have to accept by faith because it goes beyond what we know by human experience. Now, I alluded to the second question a little bit already, but why is it important to have an accurate understanding of the Trinity? Okay, so we're talking a whole bunch about the doctrine, or, you know, Trinity, uh, theology, but is it that important? Well, yes, I would say that it is for several reasons. Uh, first of all, for God's glory, which is tied to your happiness. In seeing the Trinity, you see further some of the truths that the rest of the scripture talk about God, that God is independent, that God is self-sufficient, that God is self-satisfied. If God were not triune, and yet God is love, or God is mercy, or God is other perfections, how could he demonstrate that? How could he enjoy that unless there were creation? That would make God needy about creation. Oh, he's such a loving God, but he's got no one to love. But if God is Trinity, he shows love within himself. He, he is satisfied in the relationships within himself. So he is not in need of man. That's why God is able to say in the scriptures, if I needed anything, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you, oh man, because God is totally independent. The Trinity helps reinforce and support those doctrines. It also, as I said, shows God's transcendence, his exaltedness, his holiness. He's totally set apart from what we know, though yet he's graciously revealed himself to us. We praise him for this. We praise him for how glorious and how even incomprehensible he is. And that's part of our joy as believers. It's also, and I think this is a little bit of what Dwayne was talking about before, the Trinity is instructive about our own human relationships. Something very profound and that God's essence pictures unity in diversity. And is it any wonder that such is reflected in God's creation? You could talk about creation as a whole and how it all fits together, even though it's so many different parts, but also specifically in marriage, in the church, in church leadership, there is to be a oneness in diversity. And that is beautiful, that is beneficial, that is enjoyable. I think it's, and this just the occurred to my mind right now, it's instructive that so many times in the New Testament, when the apostles or the biblical writers are giving application of what it means to be a Christian, here's your great salvation. Now, here's how you apply it. One of the very first things they almost always say is, be one, be united with one another. That is one of the outgrowths of being saved and coming to know the God who is one. Jesus, in fact, says that in his prayer to the Father. Let them be one just as, speaking to the Father, we are one. God is a relational God, first in himself, then toward his creatures. And we, when we cultivate relationships, especially as we strive toward godly unity, we imitate God. And this is all the more reason why we should never be or, or think is okay being a Christian lone ranger or trying to live without the church. Not only are we not designed for such behavior as that, but it doesn't reflect God. Unity and diversity is, is central to God's essence. But another huge part of understanding the Trinity is that it is necessary for salvation. A certain degree of understanding the Trinity is, central, is essential for salvation. 
Certainly one does not need to know the word Trinity or be aware of all the details of the Trinity to be saved. But one must truly understand who Christ fundamentally is to be saved. Jesus is fully God, fully man, the only substitute for our sin. Acts 4.12, speaking of Jesus, says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The message of salvation is the word about Jesus Christ. But it's not enough to believe in a Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus, because there are plenty of people who would say they follow Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus that we're thinking of or that the Bible declares. If you believe Jesus is only a good teacher or a created being, you don't really believe in the Jesus who is. And if you don't believe in the Jesus that has been revealed in the scriptures, then you aren't saved. You will die in your sins and you will go into eternal fire because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. The Trinitarian concept is indeed essential for salvation. But someone might ask, what about people in the Old Testament? They didn't believe in the Trinity like we do. And if they didn't, could they be saved? And if they didn't have to believe in the Trinity like we do, then why is it necessary now? Well, this is a difficult question. But an answer I would say, not all the details of the Trinity were as clear in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament. But whatever details were there, and as they are made known to the people of God, people were to believe them. Various passages do articulate the Trinity, maybe not in the clearest way as it is, or clearer way as it is in the New Testament, but things about the angel of the Lord. We even saw the Spirit of God and God both being at creation. Uh, the, uh, the various prophecies about the Messiah, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until uh, I make the world your footstool. Even though there isn't a, a in the Old Testament, uh, necessarily a complete understanding of those passages, they, they couldn't help see what it was saying. That even though God is one, there, there are these very mysterious passages that describe someone also being God with God. God even speaking to himself. There's a certain affirmation that the Old Testament people were to believe of those things, even if it isn't a full understanding of the Trinity as we would understand it now. It is also telling that in the New Testament, you do have God-fearers who do not yet know about the Trinity, either the divinity of the Son or the Holy Spirit, but who have faith in God. And when the Trinity is articulated to them, when the gospel of the Son is revealed to them, or when the Holy Spirit is described to them, they readily accept this truth. A good example of that is Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. You have these disciples they're God-fearers. They, the, they were baptized in the baptism of John, but Paul comes to them. He's like, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And they're like, I've never even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. He tells them, they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. This I would say, based on that example and others in the New Testament, it is conceivable that someone with only the Old Testament might not believe in the Trinity and still be saved, but such a one will accept the Trinity when he hears it if he is truly of God. One other observation I would make. Church history poignantly reveals that those movements that deny the Trinity in some way or other can't help but deny other key elements of the gospel. I think this is logically consistent. If you must alter the doctrine of the Trinity because it doesn't accord with your thinking, then how is the rest of the gospel going to be safe? That's why you see 
a works-based salvation in Jehovah's Witnesses or other kinds of errors and those who deny aspects of the Trinity. I would also point out making the Son less than divine or just another mode of the Father, it destroys one of the realities that's central to the gospel, and that is substitutionary atonement. The Son had to bear the wrath of the Father against sinners in order to satisfy God's justice. If there is no Trinity, then the, sub, the, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement doesn't, doesn't make sense. It can't be. So all this to say, a right understanding of the Trinity is extremely important to protect us from going into heresy and uh, to allow us to, to cause us to actually be saved. If you've got a different God or a different Christ in your understanding of the Trinity, then you ultimately have a different and really a damning gospel. So that's why we do believe that the Trinity is really important. But again, a person doesn't have to affirm the word Trinity or every single detail of the Trinity to be saved. But we do need to pre present the real Christ to people as we give the gospel. Don't really have time for questions or comments today. So if you have one, please email me. I'd be happy to hear your question and answer it as best I can. Next week, we're shifting from talking about God. We're going to shift back to talking about God's word. We have several lessons on the Bible itself. And next week, specifically, we're going to talk about the proper way to read and study the Bible. And we'll see how God's word guides us. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord God, this is a, a grand reality. Lord, everything we study about you is so grand. That's why there's such joy in the prospect of knowing you more and of seeing you uh, when we come to be with you in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, Lord, just trying to comprehend you as Trinity. It just shows us how small we are and how great you are. Would you display your loveliness even in the relationships of the Trinity? And thank you, God, that as others have articulated, we have been brought in, in a sense, to the Trinity. We've been attached to one of the persons of the Trinity through the gospel of Jesus. Well, God, we're so grateful that we can become the bride of Christ. That was all your mercy. We did nothing to deserve that. Lord, we praise you for being so glorious and for making your glory known to us by showing forth your love and your mercy toward us. God, I pray that we would grow in our, in our love for you, in our appreciation of you, in, in, in wonder at you as we hear more of your word, as we study more of your word, as we talk with one another more about your truth. I pray that you'd accomplish more of that for those listening today. They, they might be filled up with your truth and filled up with your joy. I pray, God, that you grant our churches unity. Grant us unity just as you are one. Unity around your truth. Unity around the different members of the body serving one another and using their gifts. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish that just as you uh, purposed in your word for that to be in your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. I will see you next week.